It's time now for Super Psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. And welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com, on drmarakarpell.com, and on Apple Podcasts after the program. And today is Sunday, November 7th, 2021, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live in beautiful Austin, Texas. It's been a while. I was away for quite a while, and I'll fill you in on what I've been up to. Um, Art Mendoza, the accomplice entertainer, producer of this program, is here to make the show run smoothly as usual this evening and in a little while after the break. I'll be talking about my experience in New York caregiving with some caregiver tips and some um, some eye-opening lessons about the medical system and the elderly and more. I hope I can... Um, turn this around to something positive that I can give you all to think about. So we're throughout this evening's program, we will have time to take a question. So if you have any questions or comments for me during the show, um, you can give me a call at 855-345-4720. That's 855-345-4720. Or you can email your questions to me, and I'll read them on the air and try to answer your question. And my email address is drmara, D-R-M-A-R-A, at drmarakarpel.com, D-R-M-A-R-A-K-A-R-P-E-L.com. And you can hear this evening's program as usual after the show by going to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight. Actually, it'll be posted right after the program, and you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years and also on apple podcasts and for information from previous programs for the last almost 10 years um go to my website drmaricarpel.com or just go to blogtalkradio.com slash your golden years and you can also hear all of my prior shows on blog talk radio so that's about eight years at apple podcasts and for upcoming programs for upcoming events and talks and any other news, go to my Facebook page. Follow me on Facebook for all of the latest news. Dr. Mara Carpell, your golden years. This evening's program is sponsored by, um, it's produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions, and sponsored by AmightyGoodTime.com. So if you're wondering what to do after you're 50, how about having a mighty good time? It's free to search, free to post, and much more, whether it's in person or virtual. Anything can be found to fill your day with others and in your age group. And so be more active and start filling your days. Go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. 
Okay, we're going to play a couple of commercials from our other sponsors, and it's going to be very brief, so don't go anywhere. I will be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed for services or supplies you never receive. There are three easy things you can do to fight fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy, protect your personal information, and be on the lookout for suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or your local SHIP counselor at the Area Agency on Aging at 1-800-252-9240. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle and in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas, every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And now, as I said before the break, um, I am my only guest (laughs) this evening on the program because I had quite an experience in New York, and I wanted to share it with you, or at least parts of it that could help other people who might be going through similar situations and maybe come up with some tips to give you based on my experience and also mention some eye-opening Um, events that, you know, even in my 30 years of working in the geriatric world, um, it was still eye-opening to me. So grab yourself a cup of tea or your beverage of choice, sit down, settle in, because I'm going to take you on this journey. I'm going to tell you some of my story of my unexpected long trip to New York from mid-September until the end of last month, October, um, I'm not going to go into a lot of the details of the personal story because I don't think it's really necessary, but I do want to mention some of it and mention some of the revelations that I received from it as well as lessons learned. And I want to start off by saying that my personal experience is definitely not everyone's experience when entering into the world of caregiving and the elder healthcare scenario when your loved one is in the hospital. But I also know that my experience is not entirely unique. Um, Many people have already told me similar stories, and I think there are general lessons that we can all learn from this experience that apply to many people and reflect some larger problems that need to be tackled and that we need to be aware of. Um, So, again, without too many personal details, because I don't have a whole month, six weeks to talk, I have 40 minutes here, Um, I will mention that I went to New York in mid-September, on September 13th, because my mom, who will be 93 years old in February, was in the hospital, and she had already been there for a week. 
and it didn't look like she was coming out anytime soon. And although my older brother was there, I knew that I needed to be there for her moral support, for my own peace of mind, and to help advocate for her. Um, I'm really grateful that I can work remotely and I was able to go up there, especially um, given that I ended up staying for almost six weeks. And I know that this is something that most people can't do and I couldn't have done just a few short years ago. So I don't take it for granted and I am very grateful. But I do want to mention that if we can't travel to be with our loved ones who are far away, we can definitely make an impact from a distance. And in fact, other than the part where I was there for her in person to um, support her, all of the advocacy that I and my brother did with the doctors and the hospital was via the telephone and email. So it doesn't matter where I was. I could have been here in Texas to do all of that. We never actually met anyone in person. I don't even know what the attending physician looks like who took care of my mother who we spoke to on the phone because the COVID restrictions are still in effect in hospitals, especially up in the New York area. And that prevented us from being there in the mornings, which is the time that the doctors usually make their rounds. And um, so because of their busy schedule, we could not meet with them in the afternoon when we went. So if you are a long-distance caregiver, you still can have a very, very powerful impact um, in advocating for your loved one when they're in the hospital. And um, I want to really be clear that your loved one, especially an elderly loved one, needs your advocacy when they're in the hospital. If left to just um, trust that everybody's going, all the professionals will take care of the situation, the outcome is less likely to be a good one. And, um, and I'm saying that with all seriousness, that there, were, there are many things that we had to intervene with um, that, you know, we, we would have missed if we were not in touch every day. And also, um, we saw things because we were in person, but um, it is possible um, in the situation with my mom, we, even though the COVID um, guidelines were very strict and it was, we, they were only allowed one family member or visitor at a time and actually only two in the whole day, and it was only from two to six that, we, that was our window when we could visit with her. Um, we got special permission to have a caregiver with my mom all day. So that is a provision that hospitals do provide. We did have to pay out of pocket. Some people have long-term care insurance that'll pay for that, catastrophic insurance that'll pay for that. But it, I do really, really, really advise you to do that. If you're able to pay for a private caregiver, even for a few hours during the day, even if it can't be the entire day that you can afford, it's very much worth the money because they are your eyes and ears. So, you know, before 2 o'clock, 
I was unable to see my mom. Um, sometimes I could get a hold of somebody at the nurse's station, um, but they're not always telling you exactly what's going on. And very often they're busy and they really don't have time to talk to you on the phone. My, our, my mom's caregivers, uh, we had a direct line to them and we would ask them, how does she look? Is she eating? Did she eat breakfast? Did she eat lunch? Is she complaining of anything? Um, she had oxygen. How much oxygen does, is, are they using? Did you overhear the doctor when the doctor came in and talked to her or said something to the nurse? I mean, they were literally the fly on the wall. Um, the doctors and the nurses don't think that the caregivers are paying attention to that, but we're on the phone asking them, mention what her oxygen level was. Did they mention what her blood pressure was? All of those things, really important. And I highly, highly recommend having somebody who you trust, a caregiver who you trust, to give you that information and let them know that they are your eyes and ears. That was critical information for us and then being able to advocate and know how my mom was doing and was she getting the care from the hospital that she was supposed to get the care. She was keeping, the caregivers were also keeping their eye on what the staff were doing with my mom. Were they getting her out of bed like they told us that they would, which after a while they stopped doing, unfortunately, and that's, you know, where PT comes in now where she needs to get back to being able to stand and walk because she was in the hospital for six weeks, about four weeks, sorry, um, and was rarely taken out of bed. And that was because of their fear of liability because she looked frail and they were afraid if they took her out of bed, um, she might get hurt, which we knew that she wouldn't. Um, and a few times they took her out of bed, she did not get hurt, but they don't, the hospital doesn't like to take chances with liability. Uh, we had to insist, I had to insist at times to get my mom out of bed. And when they did, when the physical therapist worked with the staff to get my mom out of bed, and then I came to visit, she was much more alert, awake, she was breathing better, she was eating better, she was in a better mood. We sat around and just talked. She, she sat in her chair and said, okay, tell me what's new. I hadn't seen this behavior when she was lying in a bed. Um, and the physical therapist made me promise that I would tell the nurses to put her back to bed before dinner. And when I did that, the, the charge nurse who was on pleaded with me, please let us keep us, her out of bed until after she eats because she'll have better digestion. And I said, absolutely, that's fantastic. So um, that's an issue to work on. The, um, the physical therapy in the hospital is almost non-existent, and they don't like to do anything that has any kind of risk whatsoever. So you have to push. And we had to talk with the, the aides to find out if they had gotten her out of bed in the morning um, versus the afternoon, which we came and we saw her in bed, was she out of bed in the morning? So that, that's, those are, that's a really big lesson. Um, 
So, and I had put that here, the, the absolute number one lesson of the whole event that we have absolutely need to advocate for our loved ones with they're in the hospital. Um, we need to be forthright with their wishes as we know it. And we need to be not afraid, unafraid to speak up with doctors. Doctors are not gods, even if they think they are. Um, and it's best to be polite but be assertive and let them know if they're not following the wishes of your loved one. So it's important to talk with your family member, maybe talk ahead of time before a hospitalization occurs um, because you don't know if you'll be able to speak with them when they're in the hospital. Um, fortunately, my mom was awake and alert and speaking so I could find out all of her wishes while she was right there. Um, I discovered that the doctors never asked my mother her wishes. They made assumptions. Um, the nurses never asked my mother her wishes. They made assumptions. I had to ask my mother and tell them, no, that's not what she wishes. So the other lesson um, in the, the 30 years that I've been working with the elderly is that ageism still exists, and there, are, there is a lot of bias uh, toward elderly people or around elderly hospital patients. So doctors who do not know your loved one if your loved one is sleepy because of whatever illness has caused them to be in the hospital, if they have any communication difficulties, either with speech because of a prior stroke um, or hearing, they, they just have a hearing impairment and they can't hear what is being asked of them, the assumption is very often that your loved one has dementia and they don't really even know what they want. Um, very often that is the furthest thing from the truth. Okay, my mom doesn't have dementia, for example, but nobody ever talked to her or asked her her wishes. They just assumed that she was completely out of it, didn't know what was going on, and, and really couldn't answer their question. Now, they may not have been able to understand her speech because she had a stroke, three years ago and it has affected her speech and that combined with her shortness of breath, which was the reason she was in the hospital and her being very sleepy because of being in a hospital, um, her speech was worse. Plus she was wearing an oxygen mask. But I understand so if a, a um, healthcare professional cannot understand a patient, the best thing that they can do when there's family there is to ask the family member to translate for them. And it could have been arranged if the doctor needed to discuss something with my mom to have the doctor ask for special permission for me to come earlier in the day before the 2 o'clock visiting hours in order to translate. Um, or we could have translated via iPhone or Zoom or by the telephone. None of that was ever asked. So that's really important. Um, I was the voice of my mom. So 
You know, when it comes to elderly people in the hospital, I have come to see that there's a um, there's bias toward not treating for too long. Okay, we we people can deny this. People, um, we think that we've overcome this, but the reality is that older people um, have been seen as a waste of money when they're in the hospital. And I've been told this by someone who knows someone who is the head of a hospital, the CEO, who has said that they, they're a waste of money. Um, Medicare will stop paying after a period of time if the treatment is taking too long. Um, older people sometimes do take longer to get better. As I mentioned, my mom was in the hospital for a month. She's doing, by the way, she's doing fantastic now. She's out of the hospital. She's been out of the hospital for a month. And she's doing better now than she probably has been in over a year because she's in, she moved to a, a long-term care facility where they have excellent medical care. And so the doctors are managing her medication much better. And now she's completely stable and her focus is on activities and making new friends and, and the food and whether she's had a good meal or a bad meal and who, who's going to Zoom with her and those kind of things. Um, it's no longer about her health or any kind of physical pain or discomfort that she's having. She's, like, doing really well. But it took a month, okay? Um, doctors started to to give up on her. They started to feel like it was taking too long, even though she wasn't getting worse. And, in fact, she was showing um, some mild improvement for a while. Um, and there were days where she was actually, as they call clinically, where she was more alert, she was talking, she was breathing better, um, she was eating better, but the doctor who was her um, attending physician kept saying to me and to my brother, don't get too excited, it doesn't mean that she's getting better. I don't want you to have false hope. So I want to um, bring up that issue of hope. I tend to be a hopeful person. I tend to be an optimistic person, um, realistic optimist. So I, I, I am aware that older people don't live forever. None of us live forever. I am aware that someone with a chronic condition um, over time, it gets worse, and as you get older, eventually that person is likely to die from that, if not something else. Um, I am a, I have worked in nursing homes for many years. I know that older people die. My father died at age 93. I mean, I'm aware that people die, and I'm aware that my mom's outcome might not have been the positive outcome that she had. And I was aware of it the whole time. But I didn't give up hope. Hope is when you can see um, legitimate reasons for the possibility of a positive outcome. 
that it is not all completely a done deal, that this person, this is it, it's over. Hope is when you can see your way to a brighter future and that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Um, Doctors Casey and Gwen, Casey Gwen and Chan Hillman in their book, Hope Rising, define hope as the belief that your future can be brighter and better than your past and that you actually have a role to play in making it better. So hope is not just a prayer or a wish, but it's actually seeing a path towards the better outcome and doing the work. So in this case, the work is supporting your loved ones, helping them to fight to have, because they're really the one who's doing the most. Your loved one, if they want to keep going, if their goal is to get better, then they're the one who is is fighting. They're, they're giving their body the message to keep fighting whatever it is that put them in the hospital. Their hope is the most important. And so as a loved one, your 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 role is to keep supporting that and to stay vigilant that they're getting the proper medical care, that the doctors have not given up hope and they're still trying when there is still something to try, if that's the wish of your loved one. So I'm going to get to that part, the person's wishes. But giving up hope means that you're at the point where medical care will just not work anymore and you have to work on acceptance. Okay, but in my mom's case, there was still quite a bit of evidence of hope, quote unquote, false hope. And I checked with, I I did reality checks constantly. Um, I happen to have friends who work with the elderly because that's the work that I've done for so many years. So I had that team behind me, my friends who are supportive, but also very realistic and would be very starkly realistic with me if they thought I was going off the rails. So I checked with them. I had two friends in particular that I would check in with and ask, do you think I'm being unrealistic by focusing on the possibility that she will get better um, at this point? And they gave me all of the signs of why she was why she could get better. So she was still in that state for three weeks of it could go either way. That these are the reasons why you should not give up hope. Um, and they were legitimate reasons. They were based on medical reasons. Every day, the attending physician would talk to us on the phone and tell us that we should give up hope, that hope was unrealistic. And at one point, you know, I sort of gave in and and we said, you know, we don't care if it's just one more day that she lives. We want her to have a quality of life one more day. And his reaction was, I'm so glad that you said that. I've done my job. I have helped you to stop hoping. In my head, I was screaming, that's not your job. You're a medical doctor. Your job is to treat your patient. Your job is not to focus on giving up hope. So because of, because of my hope for, and fighting against the doctor, 
as well as other people in my life who were feeling that maybe my head was in the clouds and I was seeing rainbows and unicorns, um, I just kept fighting that. I gave up my fear of what other people thought of me, and it helped to have my team of friends behind me supporting me. That makes a big difference. So, so have your team. Figure out who are the people that you would contact to be your support um, should you ever be in this kind of situation. Um, even if you have to hire a team. So I did actually hire a palliative care social worker just to run things by her about what was going on and, and have her help me be realistic. And I discovered that everything that I was doing was on course, that I was doing the right thing. Um, even if you have to hire somebody, have your team of support. Um, but it was because of that hope that we kept pushing. And we, we, it was one conversation that I had with a friend, a really good friend, a nurse who works with elderly people, who I ran it by her and about increasing the medication that they were giving her what would be the problem with that if they already think that she might not make it? And her reaction was, you're absolutely right. You need to bypass the attending physician and go directly to the specialist. And that's what we did. And I think that the, that you need to have an understanding that there are hospital politics. And I think the hospital politics kept the specialist from taking the front seat, the driver's seat, in this and was always deferring to this attending physician who was not a specialist. Um, but once we contacted the specialist and via email and asked what would be the downside of increasing the medication, he immediately wrote back within 15 minutes and said, you are absolutely right and there is no downside and we're doubling the medication and, and adding an enhancer. Um, that was the pivotal moment. Um, there was pushback from the doctor. He did not like it. He wanted us to to give him permission to take away that medication. So you have to keep advocating. You have to keep pushing. And my reaction was very polite, but no, I'm not going to give that permission. I'm leaving it up to the specialist. Um, it was that extra medication that saved my mother's life. It was within a week that she was getting ready to leave the hospital. And she is doing fantastic, as I said. So it pays off to advocate. Now, we were aware. I was very much aware, and I let the specialist know, I'm aware that it might not work. As he said, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but it's worth a try. So, you know, um, you know, in football, they call that a Hail Mary pass. It was kind of a Hail Mary pass in medicine. They were going to just try it. But it was that trying it that saved her life. In the middle of all of this, they were trying to get us to give up the hope and go to choose hospice for my mom. In choosing hospice, they would not have been able to do that Hail Mary path. 
hospice might have kept her on a maintenance dose of her medication, but they would not have given her that more aggressive medication. I'm not, da- I'm not downgrading hospice. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I know many people have had excellent experiences with hospice with their loved one, and even people personally I knew were in hospice in past. Um, but hospice is not for everyone, and it's not for every moment. So in this situation, hospice might be future, but it was not for that situation because hospice is based on knowing the wishes of the person and seeing and and they and if there is no way out okay so if if the person says even if there is a way out even if there is a, a chance that medication will work but the person says you know I just am tired I just don't want to do it anymore I feel like I'm suffering I just want to be made comfortable well, then that's a time that hospice might be appropriate. But if there is a chance and the person is actually saying, I want to keep trying, which is what my mom said. No, I'm not suffering, which is what my mom said. Will you promise me, mom, that you'll tell me if you start to suffer? Yes, but I'm not suffering. I want to try. Mix that with the 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 fact that she was still eating and drinking and talking and alert and she was not actively dying and there was this chance she is not appropriate for hospice. It wasn't until we really pushed that and made it very, very clear that those were her wishes and I knew that those were her wishes beforehand because that's just how she sees life as precious and she has a very strong life force. Um, but once we made it very clear, that's when they backed off about hospice. But it was very upsetting, I would say, to have people constantly trying to push it. And I started to think about why is it that they're pushing hospice and I I, the the thought that I had this was my hypothesis was that doctors don't like to fail and if they keep trying and the person dies with all of their trying they feel like failures but if they say well the person you know that there isn't anything more that can be done because of it's out of their hands um so now that person, we're going to choose, they're going to choose hospice, it kind of lets the doctors off the hook. And I think that they like when a person chooses hospice so that they don't have to be in that position. And it was just a hypothesis, but then I had the opportunity to speak with a physician's assistant who used to be a hospitalist. Those are, a hospitalist is, is a, it's now who they have as attending physicians most of the time, and they rotate through. And I asked him if that was something that hospitalists would prefer, that the person go to hospice in that situation. And his response was, on the one extreme, you have families that have a loved one who is 
on life support and there's no chance of them ever coming off of it, but they can't let them go. And that hospice would be the, the best choice for them. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have exactly what I just laid out, that the doctors do not like to fail, and so they push people to hospice. As I said, hospice can be a great thing for people who who want it and who are in that situation where there is no other way. And I did also read up about hospice um, and why some doctors push hospice. And one of the things, I found an article from 2013, and I have a feeling that things haven't really changed a lot in the healthcare system since 2013 in terms of um, penalties and things of that sort. And what it said is that hospitals are penalized when people die in the hospital. So they prefer people who are in danger of dying um, to leave and go to hospice. They would rather not treat and try and really push to save someone if they've been there for a while. They would rather get them out to hospice because then um, they don't get penalized as having a death in the hospital. So that's something to consider. The other thing is Medicare. Um, uh, somebody that I know told me that um, she was pushed to put her husband on hospice because Medicare decided that they just were not going to pay. It had been too long, and they were not going to pay for treatment anymore. Um, there is a very ageist view in the healthcare system based on age. So um, if somebody is elderly, they would rather they would rather do less, even if that person wants aggressive treatment. They would rather spend less money on treating the person and get them to hospice. And the the bias sometimes is unconscious that if they're that old, they're just not going to make it. And actually I found some articles that um, found evidence that age is not the primary factor about whether or not the the treatment will work and whether or not the person will live that there are young people who are very fragile and may not live, and there are older people who are very resilient and who keep bouncing back. So age is not a legitimate factor, but it's often used as the deciding factor. Um, So don't take away hope. Without hope, um, we we give up too soon. And according to Gwyn, Drs. Gwyn and Hellman, from, who wrote the book Hope Rising, the research shows that people with high hope do better in life than those with low hope. When hope is high in a medical setting, patients respond better to treatment. So patients who have hope for the future actually, and in Dr. Jerome Brutman's book, The Anatomy of Hope, Patients with higher hope were found to respond more positively to treatment for even aggressive and terminal forms of cancer. So, you know, being hopeful does not mean not being does not mean being unrealistic. But a glass that's half full, as I've spoken about on this show before, is both half full and and half empty at the same time. So if we take the steps and do the work to enhance that full portion of the glass, 
then it has a chance of lead, a better chance of leading to a positive outcome. And the biggest thing that I felt in my situation was that at least if it doesn't work out, I would know that I tried everything that I could to make my mom, to honor my mom's wishes. Um, so, you know, how do we get to the point of being someone who has hope, even in these dire situations? Um, first of all, I came up with a list of what I did as a caregiver to keep myself positive, to keep myself from getting sick, to keep pushing for my mom, and to to be a positive when I walked into the room with her so that she had that positive feeling and that hope and would keep going. Um, Every day I took a walk. And the weather was beautiful. I was very lucky. And there were a lot of beautiful parks up there in Westchester. And then she moved to Connecticut. I was walking every day. Um, Sometimes I would find a friend to walk with because I still have some friends up there. Um, and a lot of times I walked alone, but I made a, I made a point of walking every day. I couldn't be to the, at the hospital until two o'clock. So I walked every day, um, both for the exit, really, really important to keep our mind clear and just to get away into beauty and nature. Those are really, really powerful, um, ways of keeping from becoming negative and pessimistic and getting sick, frankly. Um, I also made a point because I had friends up there to meet a friend for dinner almost every night. I met a friend for dinner because I had to leave the hospital by 6 o'clock. I, otherwise, I'd be kicked out. So um, I would meet a friend for dinner. And during those times, it would be just to enjoy being with a friend and getting away from that hospital situation. And a lot of times it was talking about the situation and my friends supporting me and, and um, helping to keep me strong. And, you know, I think another part of it is staying, staying, um, keeping myself up on the information that's out there finding out about her condition, finding out about um, what helps, what works, what doesn't work. Those are all really important ways of of continuing to advocate and remain a positive force. And, um, you know, there were times where I didn't feel so great. I actually fell in the hospital um, because I was so... I was running around so much when I was there and I was wearing the wrong shoes and I fell. So it's really stay vigilant on taking care of yourself. I was like the the picture of the worst type of caregiving where I had a pack of, of ice between my knees because I hit my knee while I was helping my mom eat her dinner. So think, take breath even throughout the time that you're with your loved one. Um, Don't do what I did at that moment. And I remember that after that, and that that never happened again. Um, 
have an attitude of gratitude. Every time I saw anything positive, I was grateful. I was celebrating constantly any any positive sign. And, of course, now I'm just so grateful um, that my mom is enjoying her life right now. So gratitude is really, really important. And And I knew, even when I knew that the outcome might not be the best, <laughs> that it might be the worst, I was grateful for that time that I had with my mom, that, that very intimate time of helping her eat and helping and bringing her something to drink when she was thirsty and helping to boost her spirits. I knew that that would be a really, really important memory for me going forward um, should the worst situation happen or even now the best situation, that we had that time together. So gratitude is really, really important. And and turning yourself into somebody who is a realistic optimist sort of sets you up for those situations where hope is needed, that you're more likely to be hopeful in dire situations. And I, I wrote about that in my book, The Passionate Life, about being a realistic optimist. And having this attitude all the time helps when you're in those situations. So having a positive attitude um, with an honest evaluation of the challenges is important. Um, Expecting that there will be stumbling blocks so that you're not disappointed when there are or thrown off track. Um, Don't obsess about the unpleasant along your path. Try to focus on the positive. Contribute in some way to someone else's life. So when you're a caregiver, I felt like at that moment, this was the most important thing in my life. And just being able to see her comforted brought me, brought me joy in that moment. Um, but doing that on a regular basis, helping other people can set you up to be a realistic optimist who is hopeful in those kind of situations. Um, spending time laughing, you know, it might be difficult when you're in the midst so difficult, but throughout the day, every day, um, even leading up to those moments, laughter is really important, even laughing at the the situation, laughing at yourself, um, and taking care of yourself, the basics of self-care. You have to, you really have to do that or you won't be there for your loved ones. Um, and, you know, keeping a journal, writing down what works. Anytime you have something positive happen, a positive outcome, listing, what did I do that works? So that the next time something happens like that, you have your toolbox. That's really important. And that's been really important for me. I've been jotting down, what did I do that helped me? Because this situation is likely to arise again, and what's going to help me get through it? So I hope that my experience um, can help some of you out there um, who are going through a similar situation or who might go through that situation in the future. And uh, it's really important to stay strong, um, 
your your loved one is important and 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 your desire and their desire is important don't be intimidated um by people who who are are trying to tell you otherwise that or trying to tell you what that they think they know what your loved one wants better than you do um of course find out make sure that you know what they really want um so on that note we're going to end a little bit early this evening since it's the first show back on the air and i want to let you know what's coming up next week um We'll be, next, we'll be back next Sunday, November 14th, and I will have a guest. We'll be joined by author Annette Simmons to discuss her latest book, Drinking from a Different Well, How Women's Stories Change What Power Means in Action. So it's about women's empowerment. And more, we always have more on the program. And again, if you want to hear tonight's program, Again, and read the information from the show, go to my website, drmaricarpel.com. You can hear the show in five minutes by going to Blog Talk Radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years, or going to Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Facebook for upcoming events, Dr. Mara Carpel, your golden years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by amightygoodtime.com. And thank you, Art, for producing the show. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Comes a time when you're all alone Comes a time, gotta write that song May not make any sense at all But it's up to you, keep a smile on your face Now I've been young mostly every day Just like you, don't you ever change Cause this world's getting pretty old And it's up to you a smile on your face, butterflies down, butterflies down, butterflies down. Now don't forget who wrote you this song, cause there'll be times you'll feel all alone in this world. So Greg, don't forget this song is for Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any of the information given on this show. 